On 9-11, this is Soccer City. The U.S. men's national team visited the 9-11 memorial during their recent trip to the area. Yahoo! soccer writer Doug McIntyre, he'll share that story and more from the USA-Brazil match at MetLife Stadium. James Sands, who visualizes a future with the senior team, he got his first MLS start for New York City FC. We'll hear from James and his coach, Dome Turon. Ian Joyce, he's a former England and MLS professional goalkeeper. He reveals his thoughts on the recently retired Clint Dempsey. Plus, he runs a business to ease the pain of a midseason trade. And Ian also, he'll have thoughts on the U.S. 20 women's national team, where he's an assistant coach. Doug McIntyre, he's a U.S. men's national team soccer insider. He's a soccer writer for Yahoo Sports, and he's been covering the game of the U.S. since 2002. Doug, welcome to Soccer City. It's great to talk to you. Thanks for having me on, Glenn. Great to be here. All right, so you are a New Yorker. You, your parents were Scottish, so this is uh, your introduction to the game? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I grew up in New York, but my, you know, I, my one of my earliest memories is that my dad kicking a ball to me, and and you know, not not throwing a baseball, though we did that later, later on. Uh, but yeah, the game was always uh, was always part of my life. I have early memories of watching Scotland uh, in the in the World Cup. Um, it's been a long time since Scotland played in the World Cup, but yeah, some of my early memories were. Were that and uh, and uh, and of course growing up in New York uh, City and in my neighborhood in particular, there was lots of people from all over the world um, that also loved the game. Uh, so uh, you know, soccer's always been sort of part of my life, and I'm grateful that I've been able to cover it professionally for for so long. Thanks for making me feel old, Glenn. I appreciate it. <laughs> Anytime. Well, you can you can stab back at me at any moment. You're. I think of Scotland, and then I always think of Carney, and I think of John Harkes. And those were brilliant days, though, growing up uh, in a soccer environment when so many of us, and I'm included in that, I was in Basking Ridge, New Jersey, where uh, soccer was quite foreign. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I, you know, I was a, a huge fan of the, the 1994 World Cup team, and, and uh and it was cool that a lot of those guys were, were from the area. I mean, as any New Yorker will tell you, you know, we don't we don't consider New Jersey really part of New York at all. So it's funny. Tim Whale last week, Glenn, you were out at training when the U.S. team was training out at the Red Bulls facility. Someone asked him what it was like to be back, you know, kind of in his hometown, and he said, "Well, I'm from New York," you know, even though he he played for the Red Bulls Academy and stuff like that. So, but yeah, to see you know John Harks, Tony Miola, Tab Ramos, all these guys, uh, you know, they were certainly guys that I uh, you know was a fan of growing up and and. You know, funnily enough, have gotten to know over the years uh, doing this job. Well, I'm a Jersey boy, so I'm well aware of the affliction. I know people from New York that won't even cross the river; they just won't do it. All right, but you had to to get to U.S. Brazil at MetLife Stadium in East Rutherford, New Jersey. So two to nothing in favor of the five-time World Cup champions. They uh, had a bulk of their first unit on display, which was impressive. Neymar he dazzled a bit. But I think the player of the match for the Brazilians may have been Douglas Costa, who burst past the 21-year-old fullback Anthony Robinson for the U.S. and created a, uh, the first goal of the match. And, you know, Robinson, he's fast, like very fast. So, Doug, I want you to listen to his post-game thoughts. Well, I tried. It definitely wasn't um, my best game, but it was a learning experience. And, you know, games like this against Brazil, like top teams, you've got to enjoy every minute of it. And, you know... Uh, as much of a challenge as it was, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the challenge, and I've learned a lot from it. Yeah, I'd say it's definitely a different type of speed. Um, um, 
I'd say like after about two or three steps, he was already at full flow, and you know I had to catch up to him. Like actual actual speed wise, were probably similar, but his acceleration was you know a completely different level. So that's when you've got to start adjusting your defensive positioning against him. It's hard to get used to a player like that who's so quick, and you know for the first goal he's done me down the side, and got the better of me pace wise. But you know I was, um, had to take advice from the coaches and the players second half, and I feel like I grew into the game. Um, Took, took on the advice they said, got tight, didn't let him get at me as easy. And then when William came on, it was just a case of doing the same thing, trying to you know shut him down and not let him play. And then I feel like the whole team got better towards the end of the game. Well, Doug Robinson, he drew a lot of praise for his performance against Kylian Mbappe in that uh, 1-1 draw with France before the World Cup. And France goes on and wins the World Cup championship. But then you got Robinson. So look at his last two friendlies, the France uh, match, uh, Mbappe, and then on Friday night, Douglas Costa, and then Chelsea star, William. So uh, those were some pretty stiff exams for the youngster. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought it was interesting what he said. By the way, are we sure that was Robinson, not Brad Friedel, with the with the English accent? <laughs> Throw some people off, of course. Robinson's, Robinson's legit. He's legit. At least one of his parents is English. Yeah, yeah. Well, his dad's his dad's a New Yorker. Right? His dad's from White Plains, so um, you know, in place for the U.S. Uh, internationally, terrific young player, and uh, you know, a left back. And, and left backs, as we all know, don't grow on trees in the United States. So, um, really good young prospect uh, for the U.S. But I thought it was interesting that he said, you know, it was, it was almost the speed of thought um, that, that 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 did him in uh, on that that play that led to the goal that that you referenced, uh, Douglas Costa just. You know, got the ball, and it was one quick move. And, and there he had the advantage. It's a player with a bit more experience, one of the best players in the world, Douglas Costa, of course. And uh, and and Robinson was left, you know, chasing shadows, basically. But th- those are the moments that I think uh, are, are invaluable and, and what these friendlies provide. I don't think anyone thought the U.S. was going to win that game on uh, that on Friday, with the exception of Tim Weah, who, you know, is 18 and, and optimistic. But realistically, that was always going to be a, a tough night for the U.S. I thought they might be on the end of even a more lopsided result. So 2 nothing. I think all things considered, uh, not terrible. Brazil didn't have a ton of chances. Um, but, yeah, these, these games are, are interesting and obviously uh, a, bunch more, uh, a bunch more difficult tests to come for the U.S. before the end of the year. Uh, I think the stat that we heard, Glenn, was what is it? Four World Cup, different world, previous World Cup winners in uh, in one the same calendar year for the first time uh, since 1993. So 25. It's been 25 years since the U.S. has had a schedule uh, as tough as this. So uh, you know you're going to have those moments along the way. And they're doing it under a caretaker, uh, Dave Sarakin. That was his seventh match, his seventh friendly match since he replaced Bruce Arena. So I want to ask you, uh, it's been almost a year since Arena packed it in after the failure to qualify for Russia in 2018. Has that been a problem for you? It's not ideal, and I've said the same thing to everyone. It's not, you know, in a perfect world, you would have a coach in place, a permanent coach in place sooner. But I think there's some, you know, you hear the explanations from U.S. soccer, and you can kind of understand what's, what happened. I mean, obviously, the failure to qualify, we saw the repercussions. Sunil Gulati, um, the president at the time, uh, opts not to run for re-election. There's a big field of candidates. No one knows who's going to be the person in charge. Um, for you know, for months the elections in February, uh, so there's a, a bit of a, a time uh, to wait between the qualifying failure in October and the arrival of a new president. So Carlos Cadero gets the job. 
Um, it's decided that, you know, the president of the federation, uh, rightly in my opinion, is not going to be the guy picking the, the, the coach. There's a general manager position created, so there's a, a search for general manager. They get Ernie Stewart. I think that's a guy that um, certainly is qualified to do that job, has some, some uh, experience, uh, diverse experience that I think makes made him the ideal candidate. You know, he's played in, in MLS. He's played in Europe for a number of years. A great national team player, played in multiple World Cups, had served in, as an executive, uh, both with clubs in, in the Netherlands and in and MLS. There's an, a bunch of factors that uh, have led to the delay. I mean, you can look at it as the United States doesn't play a competitive game until next summer. So there's a, there's a bit of time, um, but it seems like it's, it's now uh, getting down to crunch time and that there's going to be a, a head coach in place uh, by the end of the year. Well, Ernie Stewart, he held court last Thursday, the day before the Brazil match. What did we learn from that sit-down? Well, he, was, he played it pretty close to the vest. I mean, er, Ernie's a guy that's not going to let a lot of information out, and for obvious reasons. He's not going to say, you know, which candidates he has in mind. Um, so there was a bit of reading the tea leaves, but, um, you know, Stewart's been reaching out to, uh, you know, former teammates, guys that have been around the program, that have uh, served as captains, played in World Cups, have, you know, uh, 100-plus caps, guys like that, to get their opinion on what they think is important to the next national team coach. And it sounds like the, you know, the interview pro- process is going to be short. Um, there's not, you know, Stewart said, I'm not going to interview 18 guys. You know, I've said from the start, I think the guy that's going to end up with the job in the end is Greg Berhalter. And nothing that happened or was said in that roundtable with reporters uh, made me think that, um, that that wasn't the case, even though you know, Ernie was asked directly about Greg Berhalter and, and, uh, and the idea that they're, uh, you know, they're, they're close. Um, they're former teammates. They were teammates at the 2002 World Cup. Uh, you know, Stewart said they have a professional relationship. They respect each other, but it's really not anything more than that. But that certainly doesn't mean that he's, he's not – thinking of hiring him as a coach, and certainly Burhalter is a candidate that a lot of people have sort of looked at his situation with the Columbus crew and, and some of his qualities and uh, the, the successes that he's had with that small market, low-budget club in MLS over the last number of years and say he's sort of a an obvious candidate. And then you've got his brother Jay. It's depending on who you talk to, he's a top three leader in the U.S. Soccer Federation, plus the Stuart Burhalter former teammate thing. It, it does have the appearance of a slam dunk. It's interesting. You could certainly look at uh, you could look at the fact that Jay Burhalter is a, an executive with U.S. Soccer and and wonder if that gives uh, Greg the inside track. I mean, the thing I would say is that whether or not his brother works for the federation or not, there's no question that uh, that Greg Burhalter is, is is qualified and would be considered on the merits of his his resume. The thing that's important is that. U.S. soccer has to go out of its way to show that Jay Burhalter is not involved in the, the coaching search at all, um, and that the onus is really on them to do that. And it's a you know it's a bit tricky because, uh, as you said, Jay's a powerful guy, and you know he was on the committee to hire Ernie Stewart. Yeah, Yahoo Sports uh, soccer writer Doug McIntyre. I gotta ask you, do you think it's your? I want your opinion on this. Is it important that the next U.S. men's national team coach is an American? My opinion is the United the United States should. Uh, should be trying to get the best coach possible. And, you know, what does that mean? It means the best coach for the U.S. team. So there's some question about, you know, I look at Tata Martino. Um, I think he would be an excellent candidate. You've seen what he's done with Atlanta United. Um, tremendous job there. Um, he's a gentleman. He has, you know, a resume that speaks for itself. He's coached Barcelona, 
he's coached the Argentinian national team and dealt with Lionel Messi uh, and and all the things that, that goes with having players of that standard uh, in team. And he now has some really good experience in MLS, and he knows the American player pool. He knows the he knows the culture of soccer in the United States, and you would have to think he's a, a candidate for the job if he wants it. Um, but then you hear Ernie Stewart saying that one requirement of the job is that um, the next U.S. coach has to speak English. But, yeah, I mean, so I wonder, I mean, is that is that a legitimate requirement to have for U.S. coach? And maybe. And maybe Tatar Martino, if you want to talk about him, maybe he can do it. I know he speaks English a lot better than uh, than he left on uh you know, on a, on a broadcast of a match recently between D.C. United and, and Atlanta United, uh, he was caught on camera using some, some choice uh, English words. Um, so he certainly... Well, speaks- but I know I know some of those words in Spanish and French, too. That is true. No, but no, <laughs> uh, to be serious, Glenn, the, the, uh, Tata speaks English better than he lets on. He understands what you say when you ask him. He doesn't need translation. And I think, you know, in a pinch, could, could he potentially get himself to the level where... He could answer, uh, you know, uh, do an interview in English, do a press conference in English. I think he could. I think he could do it right now. His wife's an English teacher, uh, so you know, we'll see if that's, uh, you know, if, if if that's disqualifying or, uh, you know, if he's even a candidate. Hey, Doug. Uh, lastly, today is nine eleven. Uh, this young U.S. team is in Nashville. Uh, to play the hated Concacaf rival Mexico, but these athletes are putting on those U.S. jerseys on this day of mourning worldwide. Uh, the, did you get any sense for the players or the coaches what this means to them? Yeah, I, I did, and, and Dave Sarakan talked about it during, um, actually during his pregame press conference and his postgame pre- press conference. Um, you know, the U.S. team went down to the World Trade Center site last week uh, while they were in camp, and uh, you know, for for guys like you and me that were around on that day and remember it, um, you know, it's it, it's something you'll never forget. And, a lot of these U.S. players were so young that they don't, they don't, some of them don't remember at all. Timmy Weah was born in two, the year 2000. But a number of other players, uh, they, they do remember. They were five, six, seven years old. They remember getting pulled out of school. Um, and I think, uh, you know, talking to some of those guys, DeAndre Yedlin um, talked about, you know, coming home from school that day and his grandfather, who grew up in Brooklyn, uh, crying. And, uh, you know, Will Trapp, who's been the captain of the U.S. team the, the last uh number of games they've played, you know, talked about going down to the memorial last week and talking to the firefighters and, and police officers and first responders that were there on that day and what they saw. And you could see the emotion. And a, and a lot of them said, you know, it was a reminder of what they're playing for. And I think Trap said, you know, it had been a long day of training and we're all kind of tired. And then you get there and it really sort of, you know, uh, gives you a different perspective on, on what's important, what matters, what sacrifice is all about. Well put, Doug, and uh, thanks for sharing that and all your other thoughts on the U.S. men's national team. Doug McIntyre, he's a soccer writer for Yahoo Sports, covering the game here in the States since 2002. Doug, thank you so much and uh, look forward to seeing you down the road. All right, Glenn, anytime. 18-year-old James Sands. He's already competed in a World Cup with the U-17 U.S. national team with a goal of rising to the full team. The Rye New York native uh, and first homegrown player for New York City FC made his first and second professional starts in the one nothing loss to New England last Wednesday and then the 1-1 draw against Wayne Rooney and D.C. United on Saturday, both matches at Yankee Stadium. His performance... Well, here's a satisfied NYCFC coach Dome Toron after the United match. Jimmy was a, a 
a good performance, uh, play really, really well uh, again and again. And when uh, I say about uh, Jimmy, he played like uh, a player with experience in the MLS. And, and repeat, uh, it's very important for me to, to have American players uh, who are able, to, uh, able to, to play in the MLS. In line with that comment, Terrell indicated that in two to three years, he hopes to have five or six NYC Academy players in the starting 11. That's his dream. Consequently, the development of the academy, where Sands has played since its inception, plus the addition of a proper USL team or similar affiliate, are paramount. Prior to Sands starting his first NYC match against New England, he was on loan to the USL's Louisville City. Three full matches. And that was enough for Toronto to select Sands to the 11. I watched the, the games and, and he played really, really well. I think uh, he's ready to play with, with us. But the reason why, uh, at the end, when you, uh, like a coach, uh, has confidence with, uh, with uh, one player, in this case is Jimmy, you decide to play. Sands went on loan to what was a very comfortable situation for him. The head coach of Louisville City is John Hackworth, Sands' former coach with the U.S. U-17 national team. He's a real mentor of mine because I obviously had a lot of development with him, so he knows me really well. And I think playing with him in a more professional setting was helpful. That's the future number six for New York City FC starting next year. The words of Tehran. Tehran also suggesting that Sands could and maybe should go back on loan. Why? Well, the return of a quartet from international duty and a trio soon to be back from injury. The last couple of games, New York City played without the injured Jesus Medina and Uinga Brigette, while Ishmael Tajiri Shradi, Maxime Cheneau, Ebenezer Afori, and Rodney Wallace were with their national teams during the international quote-unquote break, something that obviously irks the newest head coach in MLS. We have uh, FIFA days, but uh, MLS prefer to, to play the competition. It's a strange this, this league for me. We play three in a row in seven days. After that, uh, we stop the, the league uh, two weeks. After that, we have again three in a row in seven days. And after that, we stop three weeks. If you think about that, is the, is the balanced league okay? I accept, but I don't understand anything right now. Well, Tehran and his team in the midst of an important break with stalwart midfielder Yanhel Herrera back in training this week following a 15-week absence due to injury. City will be off until Saturday, September the 22nd when they play the Impact in Montreal. Well, one of the most decorated players in the history of the American game, Clint Dempsey. He retired last week from professional soccer. Uh, Ian Joyce is a former professional goalkeeper at Watford and the Colorado Rapids of MLS, uh, part of the Rapids' only MLS Cup title. He's a scout for U.S. soccer, a goalkeeper coach at various levels uh, for the youth national teams, part of that U-20 staff that recently competed in the World Cup, and he's also the founder of Joyce Logistics Management, a partner with the Dingman Group. But for the purposes of this segment, well, Ian played a bit, more so against Dempsey, had a chance to observe him while he was in England, and so I wanted to welcome uh, Ian Joyce to the program. How you doing, man? Good, Glenn. Thanks for having me. Dempsey, I guess the first thing, since you, you were over there in England while he was there, and I think he's probably regarded as the American, uh, the first one, to really find extensive success in the English Premiership. I mean, 50 goals for Fulham, 184 matches. 
pretty prolific. I, I wonder uh, the fact that he was American, how that uh, played its role over there uh, in England. What do you remember about that? Yeah, well, listen, Clint. Uh, first of all, I consider him one of, to be one of the uh, you know pioneers in the American game. Um, you know, there are only a hand few, uh, or, uh, sorry, a handful of players that uh, played in England at the top level like he did. Um, and so, you know, for slightly younger players like myself to watch and observe um, Clint overseas, it's, uh, I, I do. I consider him a pioneer in the game for us. When, when he first arrived, and I'm not sure the timing of when you were there and when he was there, but was there any skepticism, you know, the old American thing, an American's here, you know, what is he doing yeah. here? Or did it just take him a short amount of time because of his skill? I think Clint limited skepticism uh, based upon his performances. You know, obviously going over there, I think any player from the U.S., if you watch even what's going on with Christian Pulisic two years ago, um, you know, anybody has a question if they come from the U.S. But, you know, certain players definitely uh, pour water on that fire really quickly. And Clint is one of them. Uh, again, one of the first to do that. So it seemed as if once he was there, got the opportunity, he was just climbing up the ranks and so uh, non-reactive to, to any negativity that could come his way. Well, I think that it was part of his upbringing in that rural town and East Texas. Uh, he round trip five and a half hours to get to uh, his club training in Texas, where he grew up. Also ODP, and then matches on the weekend. Five days a week, he was making that sort of a round trip, and then he would go home on the weekends after the ODP or the match and play more in a Hispanic league against guys older than him. And uh, he got roughed up a little bit there. But you look at, and maybe it's that sort of, uh, he developed that hardness maybe in that environment more so than the, the youth environment. That's, again, why I consider him to be one of the pioneers because from day one, I think the soccer culture in the U.S. has suffered from our geographic nature, right? It's huge. Uh, our country is just big. And so players like Clint had to travel to get any sort of high-level competition. Nowadays, it's different. We try to remedy that in, in different ways. But, you know, for Clint to show that level of commitment at a young age, I mean, you know, you're not surprised why he was able to make a leap overseas and see that as, oh, well, you know, five hours driving or five hours in a plane, you know, what's the difference? So, you know, it's that type of mentality, I think, that these guys have to have to succeed. And um, Clint definitely showed that from day one. As an opponent, he seemed like a guy that you could easily dislike. You know, he had that little little rough around the edges being from, from the uh, – you know, the small community and playing against these uh, older guys and getting uh, his hair messed up a little bit on the weekends. Uh, what do you recall about that? Well, yeah, no, he's a, he's a great guy. One national team camp in particular that I, I was called in with him and um, just, you know, a fun-loving guy from, from what I know on and off the field. Everything player and coach I think that's worked with him would say the same. Um, I'm sure everybody knows, too, he loves to kind of rap, and I've always seen him as, you know, just doing his thing on and off the field with a big smile on his face and uh, all business when he has to be. But, um, you know, again, a great uh, a great guy for young players nowadays to look up to, um, you know, in terms of not, you know, being too overwhelmed with pressure, right, is a big thing. And then, obviously, the performance and having fun, um, that's, what, that's what gets you through to the end. Well, Ian Joyce, former professional goalkeeper with us. And uh, let's move uh, on to the U-20s. Uh, you were an assistant, the goalkeeper coach for the U-20 women that uh, recently 
competed in the World Cup. So uh, the results uh, ultimately disappointing. You know, what is your recollection of the whole experience and uh, how the girls took it and uh, maybe even more so the, the, the status of the game on the women's side? It's been very interesting. At one point, dominant, still ranked top in the world. But it does give the appearance that there are nations that are catching up to us. What do you think? Yeah, I think, I think you touched on all of the above there. So, um, you know, first of all, it, it's always a tremendous experience at any level or any domestic or international uh, competition to work with the national team program. Uh, stepping into those programs always makes you a better coach, uh, better business owner, better father even. You know, as you, as you progress on to the performance, obviously it's disappointing we didn't, we didn't get out of group play. We had a very tough group that was, you know, from the get-go, obviously a challenge, Japan, Paraguay, and then, and so going one one and one we did not advance uh in the greater scheme of things i think uh you know looking at the youth national team programs and now being able to you know observe for you know three and a half years i guess i've been with the national team programs and um especially on the women's side you know we are pioneers there uh we've paved a, a fantastic roadmap for other countries to look at and observe and I think they have. I think I think they've dedicated more resources. And so, you know, where there's been expected uh, success in the past, there's more competition nowadays. Now, that doesn't mean by any way that we should be uh, satisfied with falling short and not advancing out of group at the very least. I'll tell you what, the talent amongst the group is tremendous. I've had a I was involved with Jordan a couple of years ago, the 17s, and a whole host of the players are really talented and the best kids in the country. You could draw the roadmaps on the women's side and the men's side and see what some of the pioneers of those game, of the game in the U.S. And nowadays it's drastically different, and these uh, these players uh, are invested in 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 a, in a number of different ways. And uh, performance is. Um, uh, performance is next. Ian, you mentioned that, uh, yes, uh, you're uh, you're with your wife and children up uh, at Newport, yeah. Rhode Island, beautiful place. And so I do appreciate you taking some time here. So, And, and you also mentioned how, you know, your experience with the program has helped you with, with your family, you know, managing uh, different aspects of your own life and also uh, your business. You're a, a partner with the Dingman Group, and I'd like you to explain that. It's relocation. Well, what I remember is relocation for some of the athletes, like uh, the team I cover, New York City FC, also the New York Red Bulls. But tell us a little bit about uh, what that's all about. So uh, it's, it's a pretty fun uh, business that we're a part of. Chris Dingman and I uh, joined forces uh, just after my playing days about five and a half, six years ago. And um, we are a relocation management company that specializes in the professional sports industry. So... Um, as you might, as you know well, Glenn, and, and uh, most sports fans listening, you know the sports industry is a revolving door. Uh, unfortunately, you know that's not uh, that's not a glamorous thing in the sports industry. And my wife Kelly and I, you know, we lived it with uh, moving from London to London, from London to Colorado, and then back to New Jersey. And you know, being a goalkeeper, <laughs> I like things to run pretty efficiently. So, you know, we witnessed a number of inefficiencies and. You know, overall, um, over time, we've uh, created a very well-oiled machine as it, as it pertains to relocation and catering it to the nuances of the sports industry. So, you know, some of the best organizations in the world are right in New York. 
Um, you know, uh, and we work within the MLS, within every major sports team, uh, sports league. It's fun. Uh, we get to put a little bit of seamless nature to a hectic time and, you know, spouses and players' lives when they're transitioning from city to city. Sometimes expected, sometimes unexpected. The one that would be most challenging and where you're, you're absolutely necessary the process if if somebody gets traded and they've got to be somewhere like in 24 hours or 48 hours or transfer whatever it might be and then all of a sudden they've got they got to figure it out while they're still training and and their kids are in school so it would it would seem uh, natural that they need help three of our three of our main services among uh, many others are real estate so the purchase sales and leases on both ends right you're you're moving out of one market into another um, and, and then the transition of your household goods and your vehicle. So it's fun. It's fun. You know, it allows the uh, business goalkeeper in me to thrive. <laughs> he is former pro goalkeeper in England, here in the States with Colorado. Won an MLS Cup. How cool is that? Ian Joyce, hey, thanks for sharing about Clint Dempsey, the U-20s, and your business. Good luck with everything, man. Hey, thanks for having me on, Glenn, and congrats to you on all of your successes also. Well, thank you, Ian, and that will do it for Soccer City. Heard each Tuesday at 1 p.m. on WNYE. Follow me on Twitter at Glenn Crooks. This is Glenn Crooks, and have a great week of soccer, and never forget.